Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's episode of the Peter Schiff Show podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN was the first official sponsor for the Peter Schiff Show podcast. We have added a few, some more are on the way, but I want to thank ExpressVPN for supporting the Peter Schiff Show podcast. You probably don't think much about internet privacy on your own home network, but ExpressVPN will secure your privacy and protect your information. Visit expressvpn.com slash gold, and you can get an extra three months free on your one-year subscription package. Well, I want to start off the podcast, though, by talking about what none of the politicians want to talk about. None of the secretaries of the Treasury want to talk about either the current or the prior, because I was watching on CNBC on Friday, And Steven Mnuchin, the current Secretary of the Treasury, was talking about why we need uh, more economic stimulus and why now is not the time to worry about the deficits. And then I heard Jack Lew uh, just like an hour ago today on CNBC. He was a former Secretary of the Treasury, and he's saying the same thing, right? that now is not the time to be worried about the deficits. We need to stimulate the economy and the government needs to spend more money and we need to borrow the money. And you know the economy has been weakened by COVID. We have all these unemployed people. We can't afford to uh, worry about the deficit or do anything about the deficit now. Now, first of all, you know, it's funny that we even have a secretary of the treasury because there's nothing in the treasury. The Treasury is empty, right? It really should be the secretary of the debt because that's all we have. We have a gigantic pile of debt. And really what the job of the secretary of the debt is, is to make the debt bigger and to make sure that the people lending us the money don't stop, right? So it's really a giant 
con job where you have to go out there and enable debt, right? You got to sell the world on the idea of buying our debt. Although at this point, they've kind of given up on that and they just turned the whole thing over to the Fed. That's why these guys are working hand in hand. In fact, when I was listening to the Mnuchin interview yesterday, and of course he's asked about the Fed, and he mentions that he's talking on the phone to Fed Chairman Powell every single day. I mean, it'll be illegal. These guys shouldn't even be allowed to talk. There should be some kind of Chinese wall between the Secretary of the Treasury and the Chairman of the Fed. I mean, we don't want these guys working together because all they're going to do is damage. The whole idea behind an independent Federal Reserve is that the Federal Reserve is not working hand in glove with the U.S. Treasury, right? The, the idea was they didn't want the U.S. government to have its hands on the printing presses. I mean, apart from the fact that constitutionally they, they, they're not authorized to do it, at least when the Federal Reserve was first created over 100 years ago, nobody at that time would have ever said that we should allow Congress to just print money because they would do it and they would just spend it. So we had an independent Federal Reserve that was you know, allowed to create money, but not to monetize government debt and government spending. You want to have some type of buffer zone uh, between government, you know, Congress that's spending the money and the Federal Reserve that's creating it. Uh, but when you have these guys working together, they're on the phone constantly. They're like partners in crime now, ripping off the American public, where the Fed is actually acting as a branch of the Treasury Department. This is what we don't want. But in any event, during this interview on CNBC, he's questioned, right? Whoever was interviewing Mnuchin on CNBC said, well, what about the debt? Aren't you, you know, aren't we worried about all this debt that we're running up here? And that's when he comes back with the, well, now is not the time to worry about the debt. We can't worry about the debt when the economy is weak. Well, they weren't worried about the debt when the economy was supposedly strong. In fact, Donald Trump was out there bragging about the fact that we had the strongest economy in the history of America. Not only was it the strongest economy in the history of America, it was the strongest economy in the history of the world. Yet, when we had the strongest economy, or when they were telling us that we had the strongest economy in the history of the world, were we worried about the debt then? No. Did we do anything about the debt then? No. Well, actually, yes, we did do something about the debt. We made it bigger. What did Donald Trump do under the guidance of the Secretary of the Debt, Stephen Mnuchin? What did he do? He increased government spending and cut taxes. So in this great economy, in the greatest economy ever, we took the greatest deficits ever and made them even bigger. So clearly, Steven Mnuchin does not think that the time to deal with the debt is when the economy is strong. Now, he also says that you don't want to deal with the debt when the economy is weak. Well, if you're not going to deal with the debt when the economy is weak, and you're not going to deal with the debt when the economy is strong, well, then when are you going to deal with the debt? Well, the answer is never, although it's not actually never, because you know when they're going to deal with the debt? When it's a crisis. That's when they're going to deal with the debt. But then you're not really dealing with it. Then you're just kind of 
responding to it. You're, you're just trying to survive the crisis. And your options, of course, are severely limited. I mean, by the time it's a crisis, right, you, you've lost the ability uh, to do things that might uh, prevent it from getting that bad. You know, it's kind of like somebody who's been smoking, you know, two packs of cigarettes a day for their entire life. And then the doctor finally tells them, all right, you got lung cancer. And then they get the diagnosis, they got lung cancer, and then they quit smoking. I mean, what's the point? I mean, you might as well keep smoking, right? Because by the time you get lung cancer, I mean, it's too late. You're done, right? So the time to quit smoking is long before you get lung cancer. By the time you get cancer, it doesn't matter about quitting smoking. And that's the same thing with the debt. The time to worry about the debt is before it turns into a crisis, except there is no political motivation for doing that, right? Because when times are bad, right, they definitely don't want to deal with the debt then, like now, right? You have unemployed people. Oh, we got to help them. The government has to help everybody. We can't just do nothing. So nobody wants to be, uh, you know, the Grinch that doesn't want to help people, right? A greedy old, you know, Scrooge. Uh, so everybody wants to prove how generous they are with other people's money. And so they run up the debt and it becomes a bidding war, especially during an election. I mean, that's the worst time to have a recession is in an election year, right? Because then you're backing up the truck with all these empty promises. I mean, nobody wants to be left out. I mean, that's the problem now. In fact, today, the Republicans now have come back to the, the stimulus table and they're offering up $1.5 trillion. Remember, they, they wanted $1 trillion in stimulus and the Democrats wanted $3 trillion. And so it's a stalemate. But ultimately, it's the Democrats who are going to win because the Republicans already lost the minute they bought into the argument that printing a trillion dollars and spending it is a stimulus. It's not. It's a sedative. We shouldn't print any money and spend it. But you've lost the argument the minute you concede the debate and you're just arguing over the size of the stimulus. Because if you think a trillion dollar stimulus is good, why isn't a $3 trillion stimulus better? In fact, you're just stingy. You're greedy. You don't care about people. That's why you only want to uh, print and spend a trillion. Whereas the Democrats really care. They care three times as much because they want to print triple the amount of money and give it out. So the Republicans, though, have come back to the bargaining table and they've moved up to a trillion and a half. And the Democrats are like, no, keep on bidding against yourselves. The De Republicans are going to go higher and higher and higher until the Democrats finally take credit for getting a much bigger stimulus. But we know the stimulus is going to get passed. The closer we get to the election, the more pressure the Republicans will feel uh, to concede the argument and to uh, enable the stimulus. Very few Republicans will have the integrity to hold out. So nobody wants to deal with the deficit when times are bad. But it's just as bad when times are good. Nobody wants to be the party pooper, right? When the party is raging, nobody wants to take away the punch bowl by saying, okay, let's deal with the deficit because then you end the party. Right? You start raising taxes. You start cutting government spending. You start popping bubbles. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to be that guy. So when times are, are, are bad, 
right? Everybody wants to, you know, fill up the punch bowl or spike it with uh, more alcohol. And when times are great, nobody wants to be the guy to take it away. So we never get to deal with a deficit until, of course, we are forced to because it's a crisis. And, and that is where we're headed. There's no doubt in my mind that a uh, debt crisis, a U.S. dollar crisis is coming. And the important thing to do is not only recognize that it's coming and understand why it's coming, but to do something to protect yourself and to actually profit as other people are suffering. That doesn't mean I am looking forward to other people's suffering or that I will derive any form of pleasure from the fact that people are suffering. I wish that people didn't have to suffer. I wish that our leaders uh, could have done the right thing instead of doing the wrong thing. But just because I feel badly that other people are going to suffer doesn't mean I want to join them in their misery. If I can avoid suffering personally, well, I'm going to do it. And if I can help other people avoid it, well, I'm going to try my best to do that too. And if we can actually profit from it, well, why not? I mean, I'd rather profit from it than lose from it. I mean, since there's nothing I can do to stop the train wreck, at least I can get off the train. (laughs) At least I can do something about the things that I can control, right? You have to recognize the things that you can't control and then the things that you can and, and then focus on the things you can control. I mean, I want to make sure that I am warning people. I want people to understand what's going to happen and why it's going to happen, because then more people may uh, you know, take part in, 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 in pushing the nation towards constructive solutions that will actually work. So I want to do that. I want to get the truth out there. And that's why I'm constantly encouraging the people that listen to my podcast to tell other people about it so that more and more people will get to hear the truth and understand it. And then they can start spreading the truth. But also I want to uh, try to, you know, preserve the wealth of as many fellow Americans as I possibly can. Now, before I forget too, I will be speaking the truth on Fox Business tomorrow. I'll be on uh, the Clayman Countdown with my good friend, Liz Clayman. So um, make sure and try to watch live and support uh, Liz and her show. She's one of the few people on the networks that actually has me on with some type of you know regular uh, frequency. So I will be on talking, of course, about the Fed, about gold. Gold price is now looking very, very strong. We're above 1950 on the price of gold. I think we're headed much, much higher as the dollar is headed a lot lower. In fact, we did get some economic news that came out today. I mean, probably not a lot of discussion of the economic news. The more important pieces were the industrial production numbers that came out at 915. And this was a weaker than expected report, even though there was a bit of an upward revision to the July number, originally reported at up 3%, was revised to up 3.5. But the August number really plunged. The consensus was for up 1.2, and we barely increased. It was 0.4% increase for August, and capacity utilization is all the way down to 71.4. They were looking at 71.6. 
and manufacturing output was also revised up a bit for July from 3.4 to 3.9. But the consensus for August was a 1.9% increase. And instead, the increase was just 1%. So much weaker on the industrial production numbers. But I thought the real bad news uh, that nobody really even reports as bad news was the import-export prices, where we saw big increases particularly in the imports. There were increases in exports. Uh, and, you know, export prices going up, I guess, is a good thing for us because, you know, that's the money we're being paid, right? So from a trade relationship, you want the price of the stuff you're exporting to go up because you're earning more, right? That's what you're selling. What you don't want is the price of the stuff that you're buying to go up. And that's what really happened to Americans uh, not only in the month of August, but particularly in the month of July. See, the July import price increase for the month was originally reported at up 0.7, right? And the consensus was for another increase in August of up 0.5. What happened was the July number, that increase was revised up to 1.2%. Remember, this is just a monthly number. 1.2% increase in import prices in the month of July. That was followed up by a 0.9% increase in prices for the month of August. So you average those two together, that's slightly more than 1% increase per month, per month. You annualize that number, right, that rate, you're talking about 13% increase in import prices. Now, the Fed is talking about we want to have an average rate of inflation of 2%. Well, <laughs> we're going to be way above 2% if we have a 13% year-over-year increase in uh, import prices. Now, right now, we don't. In fact, if you look at the year-over-year number, they're actually down, right? It's down 1.4%, you know, which is an improvement because the way they, they estimated it last month, the year-over-year was down 3.3%. So they revised that to down 28 and now we're down 1.4, so we're, we're turning around fast. And I granted, and I will concede, that we did have a big drop in import prices associated with the initial COVID-19 collapse. And now we are rebounding from that. But how does anybody know at this early stage what we are now beginning? I mean, are we just snapping back to where we were? Is the, are these two months just kind of one-off anomalies, right, that are just happening because we're recovering from the big drop? Or is this the beginning of a trend that is going to continue? Nobody can say for sure. All the Fed knows is they want more inflation and they couldn't give a damn. And so they just keep on printing money and they keep interest rates down. But what if this does continue? What if we do have this for another 10 months? What if we do have a 13% increase in import prices? Now, yes, that's not the CPI, but a lot of what's in the CPI is imported. A lot of what Americans buy 
we have to import from other countries. So when import prices are going up, you know that is going to have uh, severe implications for American consumers who in many cases have no choice but to buy imports because we don't make uh, uh, you know, alternatives domestically. But of course, if import prices are rising to the extent that there is a domestic substitute, well, you know those prices are going to rise too, right? Because it's the imports, that's the competition that's keeping them in check. And so if import prices are going up, well, the domestic stuff's going to go up too. And of course, a lot of the domestically produced goods and services, you know, require imported uh, components. So to the extent that something you're getting domestically relies on imports, well, they're going to pass on those higher costs to you in the form of higher prices. So you can see all of this evidence of inflation. Again, I talked about this on my last podcast. This is why Alan Greenspan is worried about inflation. This is why inflation is his biggest concern. And of course, the biggest concern of the current Fed chairman is that there's not enough inflation. Well, he's about uh, to achieve uh, uh, his goal uh, beyond his wildest dreams of success with the amount of inflation that he's going to have. Now, I don't know how many Americans are going to celebrate this or want to thank Jerome Powell uh, for this big victory over uh, low inflation, right? Because we're not even fighting deflation right now. The Fed is just fighting inflation that is too low. The Fed wants to save uh, Americans from having to suffer the fate of a small annual increase in their cost of living. And of course, when you're broke, when you're living paycheck to paycheck, any increase in the cost of living is a negative. And what the Fed is saying is the increase that you're currently enduring is not enough pain. That in order to grow the economy, the consumer has to suffer even more pain. And that is the Fed's goal. And that is one of the only goals that the Fed is going to achieve. And that is going to be turning up the heat on the average American and making them suffer uh, a lot more pain when they go to uh, spend their you know, diminishing paychecks. But before I get into some of the real pain that presidential candidate Joe Biden uh, wants to inflict on upper income Americans, which of course is going to trickle down to everybody else, I want to uh, quickly say a little bit about our sponsor for today's uh, podcast, ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN makes sure that your internet service provider can't see what websites you visit. Instead, your internet connection is rerouted through ExpressVPN secure servers. Each ExpressVPN server has an independent ID address that's shared among thousands of users. That means everything you do is anonymized and can't be traced back to you. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your data with best-in-class encryption so your information is always protected. Use the internet with confidence from your computer, tablet, smartphone. ExpressVPN has you covered every single day with every device. Simply tap one button and you're protected. I've got that little icon on my own laptop all the time. I'm not always using it, but a lot of times I do. And a lot of times what happens is there's some content that I can't access because whatever reason, uh, my location is restricted. And so you can fire that thing up and you can fool 
the provider into believing uh, that you're you're accessing the information from a location where it is authorized and then you get access to it. Doesn't work all the time, uh, but it works uh, some of the time. And when it does, I'm glad I've got the Express EPM. It is the fastest and most trusted VPN on the market. It's rated number one by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and more. So protect your online activity today with the VPN that I trust to secure my privacy. Visit my special link at expressvpn.com gold, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash gold. Expressvpn.com slash gold to learn more. Now, there is nothing golden about the Joe Biden tax plan, what he is proposing. And I have spoken about this in the past, but it's a good time to do it again since he has really, I think, unveiled this tax plan, uh, tax and spending plan. And it is in the news quite a bit. And nobody is really putting it in its proper perspective. So I'm about to do that now. And so I really wish that somebody on the Trump team would listen to this part of my podcast because this really needs to be exposed. I mean, this is where uh, Biden is actually very vulnerable to the extent that Americans even care about this. I mean, there could be some Americans that have no problem with what I'm about to say. That's the sad reality. But there could still be a lot of Americans that have some sense of morality, that, that, that still have an idea about the difference between white and wrong. Uh, and maybe if they actually had these numbers presented to them the way I'm going to do it now, maybe it could make a difference in this presidential race. So uh, listen up, anybody who's uh, affiliated with the Trump campaign, and give him some ideas uh, from, uh, from this podcast in my going over the Biden plan. And of course, first of all, the big part about the plan is spending a lot more money, trillions and trillions of dollars of additional spending. And of course, as much as he's proposing, it's probably going to be worse. And the vast majority of the spending is concentrated on education and health care. I mean, this is where the federal government has already been diverting so much resources, education and health care. If government spending on education and healthcare solved the problems in education and healthcare, it would have already been solved. I mean, we are spending so much money in these areas, and every Democratic politician, even Republicans, promises to solve the problem, right? Our healthcare crisis, our education crisis, to solve the problem by spending more money. Nobody realizes that the problem is a direct consequence of all the government spending. Look at the most overpriced services available today. That's education and healthcare. Why are education and healthcare so expensive? Because the government is so involved. The government is subsidizing these services. The government is diverting huge amounts of resources into these services. This is not the free market, right? If you look at the products and services that are delivered by the free market, 
You don't see this. You don't see prices rising at this rate. You don't see how you have a crisis of affordability where the government has to come to the rescue uh, with, with more spending. It's not a coincidence that the areas of the economy in which the government is most involved and spends the most money is where prices are the most out of control. And so the more the government is involved in healthcare and education, the lower the quality of our healthcare and education will be, and the more expensive the cost of providing it will be. So, you know, there's no, nothing uh, dramatic about a Democrat promising to throw more taxpayer money uh, down the government twin rat holes of education and healthcare. Not that I don't think education and healthcare are important, they are important. They're too important to turn over to government. Anything that's important needs to be done by the private sector. Because if you want it done right, it's got to be done by the private sector. I mean, who has got a better shot of providing you with quality services at an affordable price? A private entrepreneur who's trying to make a profit and therefore he needs to keep his costs low and who is in competition with other private entrepreneurs who also want to make a profit, but who also have to keep their costs low and their quality high, that's what's going to get you the health care that you want or the education that you want for your kids or for yourself. A vibrant free market economy where you have all sorts of uh, entrepreneurs competing with one another to give you the highest quality at the lowest cost. Does anybody think you're going to get high quality and low cost from the government? If that's what you think, go spend some time uh, at the Department of Motor Vehicles. Spend some time at the U.S. Post Office, right? That's government in action. No one gives a damn. Who cares? They, I mean, they don't have to win your business. They've got your business, right? They've got you by the balls. You got no place to go. Uh, a, a free market entrepreneur right? The motto is the customer is always right. Well, with, when it comes to the government is who gives a damn about the customer? Because <laughs> they don't care if they have any customers or not. They're going to take your money, whether you patronize their services or not. And there's no negative consequences. If you get bad education, you get bad health care. Doesn't matter, right? If, you know, if there's schools, private sector schools, that are not delivering quality education, they're gonna lose all their students. They're not gonna have any more customers. If you've got private healthcare that's no good, no one's gonna buy it. If you're stuck in a lousy government school, well, you're stuck there. There's nothing you can do about it. The government doesn't care. The teachers don't care. The unions don't care. The administrators don't care. They're not there for the kids. They're there to enrich themselves. The kids are, you know, are just a means to an end. They don't give a damn. But in the free market, you have a private school. They have to care about the kids. If they don't care about the kids, they're out of business because their their customers aren't stuck there. They're free to choose uh, a a better product, a a less expensive product, uh, a product that has a higher quality of, of services. But you don't get any of that from the government. So Biden's plan to waste more money on inefficient, Low quality, high cost, uh, government uh, health care, government education is just, you know, more good money after bad. It's not even good money. It's bad money after bad money. But what I want to focus on for the remainder of this podcast 
is not the the money that Biden wants to spend, but how he intends to collect it, how he wants to pay for it. Now, of course, Biden is making the pledge that nobody who makes under $400,000 will pay higher taxes, right? Very courageous of Joe Biden to risk losing the votes of households who make more than $400,000, right? I mean, doesn't take a lot of political guts to say I'm going to tax everybody who makes over $400,000 because very few Americans make over $400,000. So you're not really alienating many of your voters, right? And of course, uh, Biden and everybody in the Democratic camp wants to pretend that these taxes on the rich are paid by the rich. The rich may write the checks, right? But a lot of the money comes uh, from the middle class and the poor. They just don't pay it directly. They pay it indirectly. But what Biden is also not talking about is the fact that these pie-in-the-sky projections of how much they're going to soak the rich are not going to pan out. They're not going to get nearly as much water from the rich as they think. And so they're going to end up soaking the middle class and the poor. If they don't do it with official increases in taxes, they will do it with unofficial increases in the inflation tax because the majority, I believe, of the money that Joe Biden intends to waste on education, health care, or whatever it is, is going to be created out of thin air by the Federal Reserve. That's where it's coming from. And so that tax is going to fall hardest on the middle class and the poor. And anybody who is foolish enough uh, to hold U.S. dollars a U.S. dollar-denominated debt, right? Which is why I am, you know, constantly telling people you got to get out of dollars, you got to get into currencies that the Federal Reserve can't tax. You got to own real assets, stocks outside the United States. You got to own gold, silver, real money. I talked on last week's podcast about the Perth Mint program at Europe Pacific Capital. Inquire about that. Don't forget to have physical gold and silver in your possession. Everybody needs to have some gold and silver at their possession, in their possession. And you don't want to be a coin collector. You know, don't let some salesman talk you into buying what they say are rare coins, collectible coins. In fact, if you call my company Shift Gold, that's not going to happen because I don't let it happen. We don't even sell those coins. I don't want to have that kind of uh, product even available. There's no bait and switch going on. We're just selling bullion. We want to make sure that our clients get the most gold and silver they can afford for the money. You don't want to be a coin collector. You know, I mean, if you want to collect coins, you can collect stamps. You can collect baseball cards. Collecting coins has got nothing to do with buying gold as a hedge against inflation as a form of money that you can save and have um, confidence uh, that it's buying power will not erode over time. But I want to focus mostly on these increases in the income taxes that Biden uh, has in mind for the rich. And of course, this is just what he is proposing. It could end up being worse, right? The taxes might end up even being higher. So on the upper income, Biden wants to restore the top tax rate from the uh, back up to, was it, 39.6 is where it was before Trump lowered it 
down to 37, right? So, oh, 37 to 39.6. That doesn't sound that bad, right? It's not that much. Well, it gets a lot worse. That's just uh, the, the beginning. Because what he also wants to do is he wants to eliminate the differential between ordinary income and capital gains and dividend income. Capital gains and dividend income are currently taxed at a maximum rate of 23.8%. And that rate has really been in effect since Bush, right? And, and that happened during, uh, during his recession uh, where they lowered that. In fact, he initially lowered it to 20%. He lowered it to 20. Obama raised it because that extra 3.8% was the Medicare, right? People call that the Obamacare tax. In order to help pay for Obamacare, they said, okay, we're going to take that Medicare tax that we used to just have on wages, and now we're going to apply that to capital gains and dividends. And so that's where the 3.8% came to make it 23.8. Well, now Biden wants to uh, up that again. He wants to outdo his former boss. He doesn't want to only apply the Medicare tax to dividends and capital gains. He wants to apply the entire Social Security tax to dividends and, and capital gains. But not just dividends and capital gains, on ordinary income, right? And, and, and right now, you pay the Social Security tax on your income up to a point. I forget the number where it maxes out, 130, 140,000. There's, there's a point where uh, you've maxed out your Social Security obligation. The Medicare op- obligation never goes away. I mean, it used to a long time ago, uh, but you know the government is constantly moving the bar. And so I forget when they made the Medicare tax apply to 100% of your income, no matter how much you earn. Uh, but now Biden wants to do the same thing with the Social Security tax. Now, of course, people who are going to be paying uh, this higher Social Security tax, they're not going to qualify for any higher benefits, right? So this is, you know, you can see more of a welfare aspect creeping in to Social Security and kind of destroying the illusion that this is anything but a welfare system, that it's some type of retirement system where the benefits have a relationship to what you pay in because now we're going to have this huge increase in the taxes that people pay without any increase at all in the benefits that they're supposedly going to be receiving. But if you look at this whole thing, what Biden wants to do is raise the ordinary income tax, not from 37% to 39.6, but to 558 558 that is a 50% increase in the current top bracket of 37 and remember this is just your federal tax this is not your state taxes now i don't know if biden's plan is to restore the deductibility of the state and local taxes that trump took away you know if they do that then that will take away some of the sting uh, but who knows But we're certainly going to be looking, if you're living in California and New York and Jersey and a lot of these states, you're going to be looking at between 65 and 70% marginal federal tax rate. But the bigger difference is going to be 
the capital gains and dividends because there the increase is in 50%. It's 134%. You're taking the tax on dividends and capital gains from 23.8 to 55.8. That is a huge increase in that tax. And again, you got to pay the state tax on top of that. So this is an incredible increase in, in the tax that investors are going to pay. Now, obviously, it exempts the, the smaller investors. This is for investors that have higher incomes. But still, a lot of stock is held. A lot of dividends are earned by investors with higher incomes. And they are going to see an enormous increase in their tax rate. But where it really gets worse is when you start thinking about the entire effective corporate tax. Because one of the other rates that Biden wants to increase is the corporate income tax rate. He wants to increase that from 21, where it is now, back up to 28. Now, that may not seem like a lot. What, 7.0%? Well, that's a 33% increase. So that even all by itself, if corporate America is seeing a 33% increase in the rate of taxation, that's pretty big. But you have to remember that corporations are taxed twice, right? There's double taxation. The corporation is taxed when it earns its profits. And then the owners of the corporation are taxed when they receive those profits, either through a dividend distribution or through a capital gain. In fact, the corporate tax really amounts to a tax on the shareholders. That's who pays the tax, right? It's the shareholders who own that corporation. So when you own a corporation and you earn money through a corporate structure, which is what you're doing, when you buy stock in a corporation, you are buying your share of those income streams and you're entitled to uh, you know, participate with the dividend. But you're effectively being taxed twice. You're being taxed once when the corporation earns the money and then you're being taxed again when the corporation returns those earnings to you, either because they pay you a dividend or because the earnings enables them to buy back shares or their stock price goes up because the earnings went up and now you sell some stock uh, at a profit, you're, you're being taxed. So if you look at the actual increase in the corporate tax, it amounts to a 70% increase. Right now, the effective corporate tax rate is just above 40%, right? Because the corporation earns money, pays 21%, pays out the other 79% to the shareholders. The shareholders then pay a tax on that if they're paying at the top rate, right? Of course, obviously, all shareholders are in different tax brackets, but I want to talk about the, the, the maximum rates for the high income. So right now, if you're paying the 23.8% tax, if you add the two taxes together, the effective top rate for corporate income is about 40%. That means the stockholders get 60% of what a company makes and the government gets 40%. Biden's plan would increase that to about 68% going to the government. And that's the federal government, right? That's because uh, the corporate rate goes up to 28%, but then the 72 cents that get paid 
to the shareholders. Now, instead of being taxed at 23.8%, it's taxed at 55.8%. So think about that for a moment. We're talking about a 68% corporate tax in the United States. And that's just the federal government. Almost every state has a income tax on corporations. There are a few that don't. But when you throw in the state income tax, let's say nationwide average tax on America, corporate America, is going to be about 75%. The governments at all level are going to take 75% of what Americans earn uh, through incorporation, 75%. And the shareholders are going to get about 25%. Now, think about that. I mean, who owns the company? If the government is going to get 75% of the profits and the individuals who own the companies are only going to get 25% of the profits, do those individuals really own those companies? I don't think so. They're just kind of the caretakers. The government owns those companies. The shareholders are simply managing those companies for the benefit of the government. And in exchange for those services, the government is cutting in the individual shareholders for 25% of the profits. That's what's going on. This is effectively a nationalization of U.S. corporations where you take the effective tax rate up from 40%. uh, And so when you throw in the state taxes, let's say it's about 45, 46%, and now you're taking it up to 75%. I mean, what if we actually had an outright communist revolution and the U.S. government actually seized legal title to the means of production? How much more than 75% of the profits do you think they would get? I mean, would they get 100%? No, because the profits would vanish. I mean, one of the reasons that Americans work so hard for the government is because they think they're working for themselves. The government's got them fooled into thinking they own these businesses when, in fact, the government owns the business. See, that's why the fascists are smarter than the communists, because the communists haven't figured this out. The fascists know that people will work harder if they think they're working for themselves. So the fascists know The way to maximize the amount that you can take from companies is not to nationalize them directly, but to do it indirectly through taxation. And that's really what America is. It's a fascist country where the government assumes equitable ownership of the means of production through heavy taxation. And of course, I mean, we already have that now with the the, the size of the government's takes, but at least the people who think they own the companies, at least they earn more than the government. But if the Joe Biden tax hikes go into effect, the government at all levels will basically earn triple what the shareholders earn. So how can anybody say that the shareholders own the company when they're only getting 25% of the profits? You know, what it's done is it has turned serfdom on its head. If you're not familiar with medieval serfdom, right, under that feudal concept, the lords of the matter would sit back and they would allow the serfs to work their land and the lords would take 25% of what the serfs produced. 
So in other words, the serfs got to keep 75% of what they earned, and they had to pay a tax of 25% to the Lord. And that's what made them serfs, right? And this was very oppressive, right? Everybody thinks, oh, serfdom and, oh, the serfs really had it rough, right? Because the lords really mistreated them uh, because they took 25% of what they produced. I remember for a long time, right, before I moved to Puerto Rico, one of my main aspirations in life was to one day rise to the level of a serf. I thought it would be great if I can only get to keep 75% of what I produced. I thought it would be fantastic to live in a world where my Lord only took 25% of my action, right? So in other words, the medieval serfs had no idea how good they had it because they never had to live in modern America where Americans have been reduced to something far lower uh, than, than, than any surf. And of course, while I'm on the subject of Puerto Rico, before these higher taxes come into effect, you guys should get down to Puerto Rico and join me. You know, especially uh, with everybody working from home now because of COVID, why not work from home on a tropical island where the tax rate is 4% and the capital gains tax rate is zero? And you got a contract with the government that says they can't raise it. I have a feeling I'm going to have a lot of new neighbors in Puerto Rico next year. But, you know, people, if you want to get down there, you should start looking now because the real estate prices are only going up in, in Puerto Rico because there's not enough supply for all that demand. And it's not that easy to build down there in Puerto Rico. Remember, it's an island and it takes a long time to get anything done. Uh, so uh, I, I would not wait. I would just hightail it for Puerto Rico as quickly as I could. But let me continue talking about this, this tax plan, which really is, is turning Americans into serfs. But President Trump should point this out. I mean, does anybody think these type of confiscatory tax rates are fair? The government should take 70, 75% of what people earn. I mean, people keep saying the rich should pay their fair share. Is that their fair share? Given 75%? of what they earn to the government? That's, how can that be anybody's fair share? What is fair about that? What is fair about keeping, you know, a fraction of what a medieval serf was was allowed to keep? I think if you actually point out these numbers, uh, there could be a backlash to this reality. And of course, if you think that it's just the rich who are gonna suffer, Look, if corporate tax rates go up this high, what does that mean? That means that the corporations themselves have less money to invest in plant and equipment. They can't improve the productivity of their workers, uh, and therefore they can't hire as many workers. They can't pay as high a, a wage to their workers. And of course, if they're not producing more, uh, they're going to be uh, providing more expensive goods and services to the customers. So people are going to pay because corporations are having to send so much of their income to the government. That means they have a lot less of their income to invest in growing their businesses, uh, which creates jobs and provides goods and services. And of course, if investors are going to have such a large part 
of their return taken by government, that means they have less money left over to make additional investments that would grow the economy, provide goods and services, and create jobs. So all of this trickles down. That's the real trickle down. These higher taxes are going to have a very, very profound negative effect on the economy, on people that uh, you know wealthier tax players might have employed, businesses that they might have funded, and of course, yeah, you know maybe uh, they'll reduce their spending as well, and that will have an impact in 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 those areas. So it's there's no way that middle class people escape paying these taxes just because they don't write the check to the government. Uh, they're going to end up with uh, lower incomes, fewer employment opportunities, and they're going to see higher prices. All of this uh, a result of these taxes. But it's not just those corporate taxes they want to increase. Biden wants to eliminate the 1039 exchange for real estate. Now, what is that? If you're not familiar with the 1039 exchange, and I don't want to get into all of the aspects, what you need to do to, to qualify for the exchange, but suffice it to say that what this has enabled real estate investors like Donald Trump uh, and the Trump family and many others is you can defer the taxes on the capital gains on real estate almost indefinitely. In fact, a lot of people defer the taxes until until death. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. But what happens is, let's say you buy a piece of property uh, for a million dollars and then you sell it for $2 million, right? Well, normally, oh, I got a million dollars. I got to pay taxes on that. But if you take that million dollars and then you use it as a down payment for a $5 million property, well, you don't pay any tax. And now you've got this $5 million property, uh, but you have a lower basis in it. Uh, And so when you sell that for a gain, now you'll have to pay the tax on the gain on that property, as well as the tax you never paid on the first property, except if you sell it and then buy a $10 million property, right? Well, now you haven't paid taxes there. But every time you do this, though, what happens is in order to qualify for the the exemption, they have to be trading up to more expensive properties. And they're also usually trading up to bigger and bigger debt. So as a result of people's attempts to avoid these taxes, they end up with much more levered real estate investments because in order to constantly be going up in market value, they're also borrowing more and more money to maintain that that, that pyramid. And so at the end of the day, we have a much less stable real estate market because it has a lot more debt because of uh, the tax code. And of course, another thing that has enabled real estate investors to pile on so much debt has been the Federal Reserve and the artificially low interest rates. But if Biden eliminates this break, then that party is over. And the minute a piece of property gets sold, all of these uh, deferred tax obligations are going to uh, be, you know, be released and there is going to be no way around it. So that is going to have profound implications in the commercial real estate market, which is already being hit hard uh, by COVID-19 and the changes uh, based on you know online shopping and, and all the other things that are keeping people sheltered at home. Uh, that market is already on life support. Uh, this is something that will cut that support. And of course, once interest rates eventually surge, which they will, I mean, that'll be the final nail 
in the real estate coffin. But it's not just the um, 1031 exchanges that Biden wants to get rid of. He wants to get rid of the stepped-up basis at death. And what that means is that if you uh, have appreciated assets, whether it's real estates or stocks or interests in illiquid privately held businesses, if you die, any of the gain is stepped up to the value of the date of death. So for example, you know, let's say you you started a business and your cost basis is, is zero, or actually let's just use a stock to start out. Let's say you bought some Apple stock a long time ago, right? When it was way cheaper and you put $10,000 into Apple and now your Apple stock is worth a million dollars, right? Because you've held on to it all these years and you haven't sold it. Well, now you die and they step your basis up from the $10,000 that you paid to a million dollars, right? And, and so now the government never gets that capital gains tax because you never liquidated the stock and actually incurred the gain. And now the gain uh, has basically uh, been forgiven because now the basis is a million dollars because that's what it was worth on the date of death. And so Biden doesn't like that because he thinks all these rich people are avoiding all these capital gains. Well, the main reason for the stepped up basis is the inheritance tax because there's a 40% inheritance tax right now. And that inheritance tax is higher than the current capital gains tax, which is 23.8%. Or, I mean, that's where it is now. Biden's going to raise it to 55.8%. But the reason that you need to step up the basis is so you don't subject the estate to a double taxation. You know, First, you tax the the capital gain, and then you slap a 40% inheritance tax on what's left over. So if Biden's plan to eliminate the stepped-up basis is enacted, it will effectively amount to an increase in the estate tax from 40% to 73.5%. So that's basically an 83% increase in the state tax. And again, that doesn't count the taxes that are imposed on a state level. So you could be looking at estate taxes north of 80%. I mean, 80%. What is fair about taking 80% of what somebody maybe spent a lifetime to build up? I'm talking about a, a small business or maybe not a small business. Maybe it started as a small business but became a nice large business. And now the guy who founded the business or the woman who founded the business dies and wants to leave the business uh, to their children. Well, the estate tax makes that impossible, right? Unless you have some really solid financial planning, uh, you you, you can't survive the estate tax. I mean, maybe the 40% estate tax possible, but still, you know, a lot of businesses don't have the liquidity to pay a 40% state tax, but there's very few businesses or families that can afford a 73.5% or an 80% estate tax. So the only way you can uh, pay the tax is to liquidate the estate. Meaning, let's say uh, a guy dies 
started a business from scratch, built it up, dies, it's worth $100 million. Well, 40% estate tax, I mean, assuming that there's obviously going to be some other assets that they might have besides that business, but let's just say it's $100 million business, zero basis, $40 million taxes due. What if the heirs don't have the $40 million in cash? Well, maybe they can take on a partner, maybe they can borrow the money, or they can sell it to a guy like Warren Buffett, right? Berkshire Hathaway. I mean, they love to buy up businesses that are being uh, liquidated by heirs who can't afford to operate them anymore because they don't have enough money to pay the tax. And of course, one of the first things old Warren Buffett would do once he bought one of these companies is start laying off a bunch of workers because he wants to create some economies of scale, some synergies with his other business. So he buys up these other businesses because the heirs don't have the cash uh, to pay the tax. Well, if they didn't have the cash to pay $40 million tax on a $100 million business, where are they going to have the cash to pay a $73 million tax or an $80 million tax on a $100 million business? So this this massive increase in the estate tax uh, is just going to be that much more of a burden on the economy. And of course, you know, it's just going to force a lot more businesses uh, to sell even before death, right? They're not going to wait uh, to die. Uh, the guys that start the businesses are going to make plans and they're going to sell the businesses before that happens, right? So there is going to be no business uh, for the kids to inherit because the inheritance tax uh, makes that impossible. So the only thing the kids are going to inherit is the cash that's left over after the taxes are being paid. But in the meantime, we're destroying businesses. And we're also making it a lot harder or impossible for entrepreneurs to you know, think long-term, to think beyond their own lifetime to the lifetime of their children when they're making investments and growing their businesses. Because if they know they can't leave their businesses to their children because the government makes that impossible, well, they're not making these type of long-term plans. But again, getting back to the idea of uh, what's right and wrong, is it really fair? Remember, if you built up a business and that business was generating income, you paid income taxes on that business your entire life, right? I mean, even if it's not a business, I mean, when you earn money and you pay taxes on it, and then you take the money that you didn't spend and you invest it, and now you die, why should you have to be taxed again on money that was already taxed, right? They taxed you out when you earned it, and then when you die and you still own it, if you haven't spent it all, well, they're going to tax you again. I mean, it actually discourages uh, people from saving and investing uh, because if they do that, a good chunk of it is going to be taken by the government. So you just might as well spend it. But this whole tax, though, is probably one of the worst taxes on the books, the estate tax, because it doesn't really raise very much revenue, but it does a whole lot of damage to the economy. And it really is the epitome of just envy, you know, because the whole idea is, oh, it's not fair that some people get to inherit a lot of money. So let's let's level the playing field by imposing these confiscatory taxes. Look, yeah, I get it. It's not fair that some people get lucky and they get to inherit money. But you know what? Life isn't fair. Those are the breaks. You know, don't be envious of people that have good fortune. You know, just be happy for them. And But it's unfortunate that so many people, if they can't do well themselves, well, they just take pleasure in other people doing poorly. And especially even if they have to be 
the ones that make them uh, do poorly uh, by imposing these taxes. But and it ends up backfiring. It hurts society. But of course, again, going back to uh, capitalism versus socialism, what right does the government have to take your property because you die? You know, the way this whole thing came about, and I think I talked about it in an earlier podcast, but this is how the government works. Uh, the estate tax and the gift tax were enacted during the First World War. Uh, and so that's one other reason why we lost that war. Uh, we got the, um, the Federal Reserve Act amended during the First World War so that the Federal Reserve could monetize U.S. government bonds. Uh, that was something that it was not allowed to do in the original act of 1913, uh, but it was amended to help fund the First World War. But also the government tried to fund that war through the estate and the gift tax. Uh, but the reason they were able to get the Supreme Court to declare it constitutional, even though these taxes are clearly unconstitutional, they are unconstitutional because they constitute direct taxes and they are not apportioned. According to the Constitution, all direct taxes must be apportioned according to the population. Um, that's why they amended the, the Constitution to allow the income tax, the 13th Amendment. There is no amendment to the Constitution that allows the government to tax gifts or estates without apportionment, even though those are clearly uh, direct taxes. Well, what the government argued and the courts bought that BS argument the government said, no, 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 we're not taxing the estates. That would obviously be a direct tax if we taxed people's property, right? A tax on stocks, a tax on real estate, right? A tax on a small business. That's clearly a direct tax that would have to be apportioned. The government says, no, 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 we're not taxing the estate. We're not taxing the gift. We're taxing people on the privilege of giving a gift. We're taxing people on the privilege of leaving an estate. And we're going to base the tax on the value of the estate or the value of the gift, but we are not taxing the estate or the gift. We are taxing the privilege of giving a gift or leaving an estate. Because the Supreme Court had ruled that excise taxes can be applied to privileges as well as to goods and services. So the government claimed that if you own property, it was a privilege to give that property away. It was a privilege to leave that property to your children. And they were going to tax that privilege. Now, that is complete BS. And the court looked the other way as the government trampled all over the Constitution. Because if you own property... You have a right to do whatever you want with that property, including giving it away, including willing it to your children or whoever you want to will it to. The government cannot turn a right into a phony privilege so they can get around the Constitution and tax a right by calling it a privilege. Unless, of course, the government now believes that these are, in fact, privileges and we don't even have a Bill of Rights anymore. We have a Bill of Privileges. Because anything we do is a privilege afforded to us by the government. Because that's how the government looks at it. That's why they don't have any problem with a 75% tax rate. Because after all, they're letting us keep 25% of their money. That's how they look at it. The U.S. government looks at all the property as if it belongs to the government. 
and they are generous enough to allow you to use it, right? And th this is where you get the concept of privilege. If we're a nation of privileged people rather than sovereign individuals that have rights, the government has all the power and decides what privileges it wants to grant to us. The government owns all of the income and decides how much it's going to let us keep. The government owns all the property. The government owns uh, the means of production and decides how much they want to share with us. That's really what's happening in America. I mean, think about what Americans have been reduced to. Think about where we were, how high we were uh, when Americans were the freest people in the world. Uh, we had this limited government that was there to serve the interests of the people, to protect private property, uh, to ensure our right to pursue happiness and, and to secure our liberties. And we had all these rights that the government couldn't take away. Now we don't have any rights that the government can't take away. We just have privileges that they can withdraw anytime they want. And the public is buying this. So I think that if, if Trump or some of his people really did a job of calling out the absurdity of these taxes, the, the, the type of taxation that Biden envisions for America and what that really means for America and what it means to be an American. You know, not everybody is rich, but everybody aspires to be rich. And what these types of taxations are going to do is not only is it going to hit the rich, right, and hurt the rich, but it will hurt a lot more of the people who are not yet rich, but who hope to one day be rich. These type of taxation schemes are going to make it that much harder for people to ever get the type of wealth or the type of incomes that would subject them to these type of taxes. The way that you're going to get rich in this country is if we have a vibrant capital market, a free market, uh, where entrepreneurs can keep what they earn and invest what they earn in helping to grow the economy. But if so much of what they earn is confiscated by government, if we basically nationalize uh, everything through taxation, if we become a complete fascist nation, uh, then uh, the, the American dream just turns into the American nightmare. Thank you.